0: Did you see that Tiger King 2 came out?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I can't believe there's much more of a story to tell after everything that happened last time.
0: (laughs) I watched a little bit of it and then I was like, this is not good. So I just went to read reviews instead and everybody was like, this is not good. So I said, screw it. But it did remind me of exactly how crazy Joe Exotic was and pretty much everybody on that show.
1: Yeah. When I was watching the first season of it last year, I was like, these people are held together with duct tape.
0: (laughs) Right. You got to be, although to be fair, you probably have to be at least a little bit crazy to decide, you know what I want to own is a tiger.
1: Yeah. And then be like, it's fine that a tiger basically took a person's arm off.
0: (laughs) Right. And then they came back, but I mean, I guess they're not the only one. So there's actually, you know, I was reading about this. There's actually more tigers in the United States in private facilities and zoos than in the wild. It is like 5,000 privately owned tigers and less than 4,000 running around where they should be in the wild.
1: That is like a startling statistic because I can't even imagine where people are stashing 5,000 tigers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm imagining just NBA players, you know, they're like, I've got all this money. I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to get a tiger.
1: I don't know. I've watched a lot of cribs and I did not see any tigers.
0: (laughs) Mm, That's true. NBA players and Joe Exotic. There you go. Very different people, minus their love of our feline friends. Sometimes I feel like my cat thinks she's a tiger the way that she stalks me. Does that count? She
1: stalks you?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah
1: oh my cats love me so they stalk
0: like their toys well i guess you're not an exotic pet owner like me apparently not (laughs) extra extra read all about it podcast tackles controversies that define your world listen to incubatively now extra extra
1: Well, just like Josh, apparently, there are lots of people who own exotic animals, whether or not they legally should. In the United States, there are um, 20 states have comprehensive bans on the private ownership of exotic animals, but the 30 remaining states have either partial bans, some form of permit structures, or much more lax regulation. Which means you can cross a border into a state and like meet an ocelot or
0: something like that. <laughs> Do you think I'm going to get in trouble if they find out about my cat?
1: I don't know. You can probably dress her up to make her look like she's a domesticated animal, but we all know she's like a very small panther.
0: <laughs> is it the inside that makes something an exotic animal? Is it what's in their heart or is it what's on the outside?
1: These are all really good questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the, yeah, in the United States, it's it's relatively regulated, although you know, I guess it's hard to go into everybody's backyard to find whether or not they have a monkey, a chimpanzee just hanging out. But Internationally, uh, it's also kind of a problem. Some places have restrictions; some places don't.
1: Yeah, there's um, notably countries like Japan, which have a special licensing procedure, and there's a lot of exotic animals available there for people to privately own. There's permit processes in the United Kingdom, but overall, the illegal trade of exotic animals is roughly twelve billion dollars annually, which is an astounding number.
0: Twelve billion. Yeah. Mm, I mean, this is, this is like the black market for exotic animals, huh?
1: Yeah, apparently so. Um, so if this uh, podcast venture doesn't work out.
0: <laughs> I could start selling my cat. Basically. <laughs> she was after me last night. I thought about it. So the practice of, of owning an exotic animal is looked down on by most governments, I suppose. But is it really all bad? Is there a way for somebody to ethically own an exotic animal or in, in a way that doesn't compromise the mental health or physical health of that creature?
1: Yeah, I'm sure there are many ways that people could do it. And I think every experience of owning an exotic animal varies depending on the actual personality and resources of the people who own those exotic animals. I don't think either of us are going to come here and say that the way that Joe Exotic does it is the way mm-hmm. that it ought to be done.
0: And it's, it's interesting, actually, I, I, I remember an episode of the original Tiger King, where he had actually gone to a much larger facility and even started questioning his own treatment of some of his animals saying like, man, I I really thought I'd been treating them well this whole time, but maybe I just don't have the resources to give them the life that they actually want. I think he was talking about his chimpanzees specifically.
1: Yeah. that, That guy, I don't know. I don't know how anybody can like feed their exotic cats, expired hot dogs and think This is the way it should be done. Unfortunately, I I guess, fortunately for the exotic animals in particular, although there are the Joe exotics out there, there aren't just the Joe exotics out there when it comes to the private ownership of these exotic animals.
0: Mm. So you think there's, there's some people out here who can provide an appropriate environment for these animals to live in?
1: Yeah, I think that there can be. If they have resources, if they actually understand the needs of those animals, they can afford special veterinary services. Sure. There's nothing I think inherent about private ownership that makes those animals necessarily disadvantaged compared to their wild counterparts. But it really just like depends on the people who are involved
0: in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, people own animals, not exotic animals, but people own animals. Obviously, that's super common. Dogs, cats, birds, right? So those animals do just fine. I think a lot of them have unarguably better lives than they would have otherwise. So what makes these exotic animals different? Is it just the size of the cage that they need? You know, the higher vet bills, if they do have to go to the vet? What's the difference between a dog and a tiger?
1: I guess it comes down to probably a few elements, um, like the safety of the animal. There are dogs who can become very aggressive. There are the possibilities that animals can hurt the people who have them, but I think there's a much better expectation of their ability to live with humans. When they're a domesticated animal, they are brought to heal, quite literally. They don't maul their owners, things like that.
0: Yeah, that's (laughs) People suck. I, I'm thinking of pit bulls, for example, and the bad reputation that pit bulls have for being, you know, overly aggressive, etc. And in reality, the situation is brought about by an owner who has this image of their head: I'm going to get this badass dog, and they're going to be, you know, they're going to protect me, and they, I'm going to look tough because of this. And then they train the dog to be aggressive, and then wonder why the dog bit somebody. And that's in an animal you know, pit bulls aren't inherently aggressive. Dogs aren't inherently aggressive. They're at a point in their evolution where they are capable of being fully socialized with humans and it still goes bad.
1: Right. But I think that, I think that the the distinction there is that there is something that alters the experience of having those dogs that makes them into that type of aggressive creature. Mm-hmm. In a way that is just kind of inherent with the types of animals we're talking about. I think we're talking generally about like large cats, but it's important to know that the exotic animal trade includes like rare fish and things like that, that are probably not dangerous, but there are right. other reasons that they're not allowed to be trade for like their endangered status or other things like that. But ultimately I think the safety of the animal is a really big consideration.
0: hmm And it would be the same kind of person that wants that pit bull for the for the image that they have in their head of a pit bull. I think in a lot of cases, it would be that same kind of person that would be like, I want this big, badass cat to show how tough I am because I have a pet lion and I put my head in its mouth or something.
1: It's like um, Pablo Escobar did with the hippos.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're aware of that? Yeah, that's (laughs) a huge problem down there now. Yeah,
1: (laughs) now there are hippos just out there randomly all over Colombia because of him.
0: Right, and well, you know, hippos are lucky because they're massive and no native species can do anything to them. But the vast majority of animals, once they're pulled from the wild, can't go back into the wild. So I think even people who would cite repopulation efforts as a potential benefit of private ownership. In a lot of cases, that just doesn't come to fruition.
1: We see a lot of instances in which people don't know what they're doing with these animals or just have them for image purposes and don't really care about the actual well-being of those animals. So they're treated basically like garbage and like commodities, Mm -hmm. which I think is pretty evident when we look at things like Tiger King. Mm -hmm. And and then even when owners set out with like really good intentions with, with these exotic animals, there is a potential for danger. Um, Melanie Griffith, when she was growing up, her family had like a lion, like just had a lion. And I think her mom was filming like a documentary about having wild cats and she got like attacked, not to the point where she was like permanently disfigured or something like that. But like, she was technically mauled by a lion when she was Mm -hmm. a teenager.
0: And chim- chimpanzees are very dangerous too. There's there's a lot of um, cases where uh, chimpanzees have gone chimpanzee. I think it was Chris Rock who who had a joke and it was after, I think, the Siegfried and Roy attack and how people were saying, oh my gosh, that tiger went crazy. <laughs> Chris Rock said, the tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. <laughs> and I think that's the thing is people people want to turn exotic animals into domesticated pets and again they have this fantasy in their minds of waking up with a tiger on the bed and it's purring and they pet it and it plays with their kids and in reality that's not what it is you know it's it is a animal that has instincts that are not companion instincts as compared to a dog or normal cats not my cat but normal cats
1: but they're just so cute when they're tiger cubs. Like what if I just nurtured them into being docile and sweet and it never became an issue?
0: Yeah, but that's, I people don't look ahead and that's such a big problem, not just with exotic animals, but especially with exotic animals. So at the beginning of the pandemic, record numbers of people were adopting animals just for companionship since everybody was stuck at home. And similar to that, I know there's two species I can think of where people just don't realize the long term obligation of owning a pet. One would be an iguana, which looks mm-hmm. like a badass pet. And it starts, it's cool. It can ride on your shoulder, or, you know, whatever. And it starts off to be a foot long. And then it turns into six feet or nine feet long. And you have to build an enclosure and it has to be heated. And just nobody wants to do that. So iguanas are just abandoned in crazy numbers. And also uh, pigs. Everybody yeah. likes their cute little pot pigs in the beginning. They're like, it's, this is the teacup pig, right? This is the tiny one. And then 300 pounds later,
1: there's actually no such thing as a miniature pig. They're basically being swindled by people who are peddling pigs. Oh, and such
0: swine. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> please don't. Please don't unsubscribe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, but people uh and the the kind of care that is required and the pigs themselves are pretty destructive. They like to dig a lot and mm-hmm people don't really understand what they're getting into with, Mm. with those kinds of animals.
0: So, and, and I, I had a quick, a quick thought here, not a quick thought, but I don't want to go on for too long about it. So we'll shorten it is even, even if you could theoretically provide a good environment for an exotic animal, there's the underlying question of whether or not people, we even have the right to own pets. Like what, what, what makes us think that we deserve to own something else that's alive.
1: Yeah. I think about this a lot, obviously, since I am a vegan. And mm. for more thoughts on that, we have a, a whole, whole debate about that in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely do it for the sake of animals, but I also technically own two cats. And I like to think can anybody own a cat? But like on property, like law metrics, I own these cats but I also know that they would be absolutely useless in the wild. So like (laughs) what's going to happen to them. If we decide that we aren't allowed to own animals, we would have to let all these domesticated animals out and who are not situated for like living out in the streets whatsoever.
0: Mm -hmm. Like I said, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but as um, a suggestion for our listeners to look into uh, philosopher, Peter Singer. And uh, if you want a specific recommendation here. He wrote a book in 1975 called Animal Liberation. This is credited as a formative influence on the modern animal liberation movement, but he would suggest that since animals and humans in many cases have equal capacity to suffer, that they also deserve equal consideration when it comes to protection. So if that can apply to the killing or abuse of animals, then I think certainly a lifetime of confinement would qualify under that same standard.
1: If you consider this to be confinement rather than protection, I mm. mean, my cats have it really good.
0: <laughs> and I guess I guess this is, again, to, to point out one of the differences between domesticated animals that have literally evolved into this situation versus exotic animals that are being ripped out of the habitat that they would thrive in and put into one for our amusement, mm. arguably their protection.
1: I think that protection does raise a really important question because there are other entities that take possession of exotic animals, but we find them to be much more socially acceptable. And those are obviously zoos, Mm -hmm. which have a pretty long history of going from the kind of, this is just for the purpose of entertaining people all the way to the point now where they're based on principles of science, uh, exploration, conservation, helping preserve species that are endangered and things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. And zoos at the very least have the kind of resources and knowledge that we were saying oftentimes private owners lack that gives them at least theoretically the ability to take care of some of the issues that we pointed out earlier. Um, Is that enough to justify their existence?
1: That's a really important distinction. And I think a lot of people have been socialized to say, yeah, zoos are good. They are a wholesome place to visit and they do such great things for animals. And we've seen a lot of things that have come out of the efforts of zoos and the resources that they have. In particular, we saw that there were massive efforts to help repopulate the California condor, which um, around 1982, there were only 22 of those birds left in the wild. And now with the efforts of zoos in particular, there are hundreds in the Southern California area that wouldn't have been there otherwise.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every time I go rock climbing uh, for our listeners, I like to think that I rock climb but it might be the equivalent of Joe exotic thinking he's a country music singer. Anyway, I attempt to climb rocks. And every time there, there've been a couple of times where I saw some California condors sort of circling ahead as I was on the rock and (laughs) I was happy that they've been repopulated, but it didn't breed confidence in my abilities at that particular moment.
1: They're just waiting for you to fall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yeah. There's a lot of efforts for individual animal species. I think that there have been wolves also in California that have been reintegrated golden lion tamarins. I think it could be said that they're pretty much only still exist because of the efforts of zoos and not just animals, specific species, but also zoos do a lot of work on reviving damaged ecosystems and also individual animals, not the species, but individual animals who have been injured. Um, zoos have the knowledge and the resources to take those injured animals, rehabilitate them, and hopefully if they, they can successfully reintroduce them into the wild, as is often the case.
1: Not only that, but they have so many biologists, zoologists, all of the ologists there to help do this research, and they actually publish a lot of their findings, which can aid conservation efforts.
0: I guess to introduce the the positive side of this, despite the fact that it might seem like a negative, Um, Because they do make profits off of individuals coming and buying tickets, et cetera, to to see these animals, they have the facilities and the ability and the personnel to research these issues in ways that maybe other nonprofits can't, that don't have elephants for people to pay to come and look at.
1: And a lot of the research that does come out of it are things that will benefit animals in the wild and not just the animals that are in the enclosures of the zoos, such as uh, issues of disease transmission, topics relating to poaching Mm. and how disastrous that can be for wild populations. So ultimately there are some products of the structure of the zoo model of ownership or possession of exotic animals that have some, they have some positive outcomes for these animals. And there's also the aspect of what they do for the messaging to the public about the importance of these animals and the importance of biodiversity and restoring ecosystems and the overall compassion that people should have towards these animals. And that is a stated mission of a lot of the efforts of these, of these uh, institutions.
0: Yeah, this is, this is, I think, what most people point to when they justify zoos is, well, look at the kids, man. They educate the kids, they make the kids care and i'm I'm not really sure that i I buy this argument that much, you know, I think a lot of people they come to the zoo and it's like going to a movie, they see the animals, they're cool. I don't know how many of us become conservationists after we visit a zoo, but yeah, I don't know how much I buy this
1: you're very cynical
0: <laughs> it's possible, but I, I don't know maybe maybe there are plenty of people out there that have become marine biologists or become zoologists or environmental researchers and that interest was sparked by a visit to the zoo when they were a kid i guess it's reasonable
1: i think that it at least teaches especially young children to like animals and mm-hmm. uh, to view them as something that they would like to have around and even if that doesn't automatically make them a conservationist or a vegan or whatever mm. um i think that they would prefer the animals were here rather than that they weren't
0: but i guess i guess if we see zoos struggling across the country and across the world, and they're having to either shut down or downsize or take other drastic measures, which we can talk about in a second, if they can't even keep, if they can't even get enough interest to keep themselves open, how much are they really doing to protect endangered species or preserve habitats, preserve the environments from which these animals came? Um, I, I, I just don't, I don't s- see how much they're doing, and I think that the question has to be asked, for the marginal benefits that they are providing, what cost are we paying? Well, not not we, what cost are the animals who are captive there, what cost are they paying?
1: That is a really interesting question because not every zoo is a good zoo, Um, and it took a long time for a lot of the zoos that are generally better to understand certain things about how to keep animals in captivity without causing massive detriment to those specific animals. There's a lot of evidence about the psychological trauma of the animals in captivity specifically. It's a very difficult thing to fully replicate a a natural environment that these animals would otherwise be living in. Mm -hmm. Even if they do a pretty good job of replicating it, the scale is just so much smaller than what they would actually have access to in the wild. And you'll see a lot of like, um, the wild cats, especially like to pace back and forth a lot because they're, mm-hmm. they're overly confined.
0: And this is, I think this is a problem what we were talking about earlier with it's like educating kids. We have this, even when you watch a movie, when you see a cat in a movie, a big cat, not my cat in a movie, they're going to be pacing back and forth. And I think that's the image a lot of people have of the cats without realizing it's a it's a completely unnatural behavior because they're in captivity and they just they don't know what to do. They're used to being able to walk miles and now they have a 20-foot cell to walk back and forth across the front of
1: Yeah, the overall effect of that among other things that happen in captivity um means that a lot of zoos actually medicate the animals with um, antidepressants in order to help them kind of deal with their altered surroundings, which I find to be kind of upsetting to think about because it's at the point you're actually giving a giant cat or whatever animal an antidepressant, you're acknowledging that this situation is not optimal for them.
0: Mm, Pumas on Prozac.
1: You just had to get like a, Pithy tagline in
0: there. (laughs) I couldn't think of any other animal that starts with a P.
1: Platypus.
0: (laughs) Platypus is a platypi. Is the plural of platypus platypi?
1: This is a really
0: good question. (laughs) Platypums on Prozac. (laughs) Um, And I, I think what might make this worse again is is zoos, while not as profit driven potentially as the private trade, still have to keep their doors open, which means they still have to make money. And the way they make money is by having animals that people want to pay to come see. And that's always the big, sexy animals. And what sucks about that is those are the animals that need the most space. So the the animals that the zoos need to bring people in are the animals that the zoo is worst for. Like Meerkats are probably fine in the zoo. They're cute. Actually, I would pay to see a meerkat, but most people are not going to pay to see a meerkat. Most people are going to pay to see an elephant or you know chimpanzees or the tigers. And elephants are a good example here where in the wild, they can live up to 36 years. And in most zoos, the average lifespan is only 17 years. It's less than half. They're living less than half the number of years in captivity. And there's a lot of reasons for this. We talked about the space that they would normally have. Also in the wild, elephants live in these huge maternal packs. I mean, they're incredibly social creatures, but most zoos can't afford to maintain a pack of elephants. And so they might have two or three. And so you have somebody who's used to somebody, you have an elephant who's used to having 20 other people around <laughs> elephant people around elephant people. <laughs> and um, you know, now they've got one or two and, and there's nothing to say. They even get along with those one or two. Can you imagine being stuck with one other person your entire life? And then you, you know, you're kind of randomly thrown together and you hate them. And I that's do it.
1: Ha- I do have a little brother.
0: There you go. That 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 does fit. And uh, you know, chimpanzees again are another good example where chimpanzees, I guess if they're not on antidepressants, and this is probably the reason why what you're mentioning is true, they engage in self-harm on a regular basis. They'll bite themselves, they'll hit themselves, they'll they'll rip out their own hair. It's pretty, pretty horrible stuff.
1: Yeah, that's really upsetting to to see and to think about. And I do think there are certain zoos that do the best that they can to take care of these animals in spite of the fact that they just literally don't have enough room sometimes. And there's not really a way to fix that. But I think if we knew the full details of what actually goes into making these animals presentation ready for the public, I think it would be very unpalatable for a lot of people.
0: Hmm. Which kind of undermines that education point from earlier, I think.
1: Uh, Another big issue, especially because we did talk about the possibility of rehabbing animals to the point that they could go back into the wild, is that in a lot of cases, because these animals are getting too used to humans, they are becoming quasi-domesticated and actually could not thrive in the wild again. So they end up staying as residents of the zoo in those Mm -hmm. cases because they couldn't possibly become fully wild again.
0: And especially, I think, especially for animals that maybe are born in captivity, no chance that they're ever going to be released into the wild. Um, the zoo, captivity is the only thing that they know. They wouldn't know what to do if you put them out in their natural habitat. And you know what all of this means is that at a certain point, zoos have more animals than they can handle. And what that leads to is... Worse than psychological problems, you know, worse than behavioral changes, worse than being you know ripped out of their natural habitat, there are zoos that are literally murdering their animals. Um, it's called culling, where they kill their, quote, surplus animals because they just can't financially take care of them. They don't have the space for them. so they like, all right, well, this is how it's going to work. you know, it's it's very, Reminiscent of the pounds or the animal shelters that if this dog doesn't get adopted and soon enough, we need space for more dogs that are coming in. So we're going to have to put it down.
1: Yeah. The information about this was, I think, probably some of the most surprising stuff when it came to understanding what the actual longevity of these animals would look like, you know, we, I think we assume that there are all these efforts to breed more animals and then trade them with other zoos so that every zoo got all the distribution of animals that it wanted. But in Europe, there's between three and 5,000 animals annually that are euthanized because they are surplus, which is an astounding number because those are all animals that could otherwise be I don't know. Maybe they shouldn't have been born in the first place by the the breeding efforts if that's what's going to happen to them. Or maybe they should have been put into a situation where they could be let back into the wild again. But that's an astounding number of wild animals.
0: Yeah. And I I actually don't like the term euthanize there either, because to me, euthanize implies that there were some health issues and the animal was put down to stop it from suffering or, you know, is at the end of its life. But these animals are. I mean, I I use the word murder intentionally. Um, These are healthy animals that are being killed, um, not sick animals that are being put out of their misery. For example, in Sweden, there was a zoo that killed nine healthy lion cubs because they couldn't afford to keep them.
1: Just think if I'm watching like a David Attenborough show and I'm like so horrified at the fact that like, lion cubs are potentially going to be caught in a fire on the savannah Mm -hmm. and that's just like an accident. And then there's an actual institution that takes nine of those sweet little babies Mm -hmm. and, and kills them. That's very hard to hear.
0: And it's, it's not just for space, but also these animals can be killed due to an overabundance of genes which means they would not be useful for breeding programs. So like we said, oftentimes there's a small number of animals, which of course, if that same pool of animals breeds over and over again, the the gene pool is not going to be incredibly diverse. And so um, I guess I'm not sure how exactly they decide, but when they have decided that you're not going to be useful for their breeding program, that's another way that you can be culled.
1: And I think that there's also in addition to this, there's more prominent stories about the way that zoos handle killing animals who probably should not have been in zoos in the first place. And that is when there is some sort of behavioral issue identified and animals probably reacting to the psychological trauma of being in a zoo become aggressive and potentially even hurt people at the zoo.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if if you are going to have an animal you have a responsibility right you have you, you you know they're going to have babies you have a responsibility to say when that happens i can take care of the babies or basic things like just keeping enclosures safe uh the i'm not trying to bring us back to the to the memes of 2016 but i remember when the cincinnati zoo um in 2016 where a 3-year-old crawled into the gorilla cage and we shot harambe because they were scared that harambe might injure this child. Like uh, the mom could have kept an eye on the kid. You think an enclosure would be set up to where a three-year-old, it can't be that well protected if a three-year-old can just wander into it.
1: I also heard another story, and this was probably one of the most upsetting things um, that I looked at when I was researching this. There was a tiger, I believe in San Francisco, that some little shits, we'll call them, started throwing (laughs) like rocks and twigs and stuff at the tiger and the tiger got so fed up that it broke out of the enclosure and actually stalked and killed. I think one or two of the children that did that, Mm. like bypassed all these other people who had not been aggressive. And so there's also an issue of like the zoo patrons themselves are antagonizing these animals. They're not, they're purely for appreciation or passive enjoyment, they are like poking the cage to literally get a reaction. And well, they, they got a reaction,
0: that tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. Okay. <laughs> but I think, I think we could use this, right? So I'm thinking of tiger King and instead of throwing Joe exotic in jail, they should have thrown Joe exotic into the enclosure with Harambe and let them duke it out celebrity deathmatch style Harambe versus Joe exotic.
1: You just you just feel very strongly about Harambe,
0: don't you? <laughs> Hashtag justice for Harambe. Taking this back to Joe Exotic, I know we we are not super complimentary of private exotic ownership, but if these zoos are failing and and having to cull animals, wouldn't we rather have one of those lion cubs go to somebody like Joe Exotic than just be killed if there's a private citizen that can afford it?
1: I don't know, is being in the, the care of Joe Exotic a fate worse
0: than death for an exotic cat? <laughs> <laughs> mm. That's tough. And I, I think it brings a question, not just for private ownerships, but for, for zoos is how do we decide the good from the bad? So there is an association of zoos and aquariums, which is an independent nonprofit, and they award accreditation to zoos that meet the highest standards of animal care and welfare. In order to receive accreditation, zoos must meet guidelines in regards to the animals' enclosures, their social behavior, health, and nutrition. And you know, these, these guidelines are set by animal care experts, scientists, and veterinarians, people with decades of experience. And they're kind of constantly evolving to, to keep up with the times. What's problematic about this for me is less than 10% of the twenty eight hundred wildlife exhibitors that are licensed by the United States Department of Agriculture under the Animal Welfare Act meet the more comprehensive standards of AZA accreditation. So basically, there's 2,800 people out there with licenses to exhibit wildlife, and less than 280 of them meet the standards that the AZA have set out.
1: Yeah, that's really startling. And I think one of the things that you can have as a takeaway from watching things like Tiger King is that until the really hidden tortures come to light, on the surface level, everything that Joe Exotic was doing was legal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only when they find later that they had, you know, e- euthanized, murdered cats and like buried them haphazardly, then then that becomes illegal calling into question whether or not they should have a license, but the,
0: and killing her husband to, to bring up Carol Baskin.
1: She was not at the Joe exotic zoo. She had her own, <laughs> she had her own facility, which is a sanctuary allegedly. So we can, we'll talk about mm. that in a minute too.
0: Yeah. That's actually, that's actually a good point. If private ownership is bad and zoos 90% of the time, apparently are bad. What kind of alternatives do we have is, is a sanctuary for example, an effective alternative to this
1: I think again, this comes down to the specific facility itself and the motivation and capabilities of the people who are running the sanctuary. They are in one light rescuing animals that are otherwise unable to be let into, let out into the wild and uh, they don't breed them, they mm. don't uh, purchase them necessarily, but they're like taking Sometimes the wild cats that have been maybe malnourished by an incompetent private owner and they're rehabbing them.
0: And I think that's a big deal, especially the no breeding, you know, given what we were talking about, where you have zoos that, that do allow their animals to give birth and then cull the litters, you know, having a place that ensures that the breeding isn't happening seems like a step in the right direction, at least.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not perpetuating an issue, which is clearly there are so many of these animals in private ownership. They definitely don't need to have any more that are not in a wild context, but people still think that this is not the best environment for a lot of these animals. They're still confined. They're still in captivity. It goes into the same questions we were talking about earlier in the ethical sense, like, is this even the right thing to do for a lot of these cats or Mm. other animals.
0: But I think maybe in this, in this case, it's not necessarily fair to blame the sanctuary necessarily if they're dealing with the problem that was created by somebody else.
1: But then the other people are just like externalizing the actual responsibility of taking care of these animals to sanctuaries.
0: Mm. And then
1: if there weren't sanctuaries and people had nowhere to go, they might rethink whether or not they would own a wild cat in the first place because they don't have an easy out of just dumping it on carol baskin's porch or something like that
0: Mm, taking taking your quarantine animal back to the pound now that you're back to work again
1: don't get me started on that
0: Mm -hmm. okay so the if the big problem with sanctuaries is just the amount of space that they have available to them i guess the next logical thing to look at would be nature reserves
1: right so these are if not necessarily facilities, but they're areas of existing habitats where animal populations already exist that are restricted from having any further development. Um, A lot of the times people can still engage with them publicly, like go walk the trails or whatever, but they have restrictions on what they can actually do in those areas. Like uh, the one that's close to me, the Tualatin Hills Nature Park, they Don't let you bring your dog with you, which makes sense because there's like a ton of wild birds and that would probably create some issues. So it's a really appropriate thing to do, I guess, depending on how much acreage they can secure for existing areas Mm. where there are currently resources and the political will to actually make those things happen. But that is inconsistent. There's other areas that don't have that kind of support and they don't get nature reserves.
0: And I I think that these are probably especially hard to establish in countries like the United States, but I know in Africa, for example, you know, they have these reserves and then they're able to run safaris, photo safaris out of them, or I, I actually went to a photo safari in Sri Lanka and was able to see a jaguar, an elephant in relatively natural habitats, but... Because they are still these these preserves, they're controlled enough to, I think, not be considered the wild. So if the animals need help being given food, maybe they wouldn't be great hunters otherwise. Or if they need help being protected from natural predators, where if you just threw them into the real wild they'd probably end up being hunted and killed a couple months later. So these, if you're in a place that has the space, uh, again, I guess it all comes down to money in the U S we can't afford that kind of land.
1: Not, not always. Um, And then there's other areas that are basically prohibited from doing anything for vulnerable animal populations because the. The financial motive to do other things with that area is so much stronger, such as the orangutans in Sumatra, which are currently having their habitats devastated for palm oil production. And there's nothing we can do. Like my community decided to have a a wildlife reserve, but we can't do anything about that in an area outside of our own borders. Mm. Can't go make that happen elsewhere.
0: And I guess the obvious one here, the the big one would be the Amazon. We, we all know how rapidly the Amazon is being destroyed. I mean, obviously there's a profit motive for lumber or the land for ranching, et cetera, down there. And besides the environmental impacts that we're all aware of, it's also destroying environments for hundreds of thousands of species.
1: There are small cases of people who have means buying up land in the Amazon to make it impossible to develop further and keep the animals safe but it's really just a drop in the bucket compared to how much devastation is happening around and the exhaust from farming equipment doesn't recognize the border of the private land a billionaire bought and you know fumes can still like poison birds and things like that and it's just a mess it's just a horrible horrible mess
0: i guess the uh, the real root cause of all this is that People with money don't care much about our silly little arguments about animal rights and, and measuring suffering.
1: I don't think people with money care about much.
0: <laughs> Rocket ships.
1: Maybe. Tax Jeff Bezos. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that our, is <laughs> that our again, answer in every our answer, episode yeah. now?
0: <laughs> Basically. You're mentioning earlier people who have the funds to purchase sections of the Amazon for example, to ensure that it's not destroyed, but most of us can't afford. I, I can't even afford to buy property in the bay. Okay, to be fair, basically nobody can afford to buy property in the bay. But I certainly can't afford to buy property in South America. I'm not even gonna be living on it. So are there any reasonable actions that that individuals can take, assuming that they don't have millions of dollars at their disposal?
1: There are things that people can do. I think that people who are uncomfortable with the things that they learn about zoos can stop patronizing zoos. So they're not at least like complicit in the behaviors that are undertaken by them.
0: Or at least maybe make sure that the zoos they do patronize have the AZA accreditation, for example.
1: Yeah, there you go. At least like do the do the homework to make sure that what you are engaging with is something that you can like stomach.
0: Mm, because I, I was actually, you know, I moved up from Southern California and I had a, uh, a membership. I'm very important, a membership to the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Safari Park. And I actually think that those are two pretty excellent examples of facilities that that do take into consideration the health and well-being of the animals. They do huge amounts of research, reintegration back into the wild, so all all the, all the positive things that we were talking about. So I, I don't want it to make it seem that all zoos are bad, only 90% of them.
1: I haven't done the actual research on it, but I think the Portland Zoo or the Oregon Zoo that is in Portland would probably have that sort of accreditation as well. Portland is an extremely ecologically minded community. So I imagine that people would be up in arms if it was really, truly horrible. Um, One of their recent initiatives was to expand their elephant enclosure and actually create what you were talking about earlier, where they don't just have one or two elephants that are kind of penned in, but they have like a huge area to run in and there's a pack of them. Mm. And hopefully they all like each other, but I mean, probably.
0: Because we have the technology to look these things up, Kelly, Mm -hmm. you'll be happy to know that in 1974, the Oregon zoo was actually the second zoo in the country to earn accreditation from the AZA.
1: Portland, we're a bunch of hippies, (laughs) but there's other individual action that people can take when it comes to some of their consumer behaviors as well. One thing in particular, and this is a debate within the actual purchasing of palm oil in and of itself, whether or not palm oil is inherently bad or only some kinds of palm oil are really bad. There's some that gets an ecological or sustainable certification.
0: Is this kind of like blood diamonds, right? Depending on where it comes from.
1: I guess so, because like there, there is traditional African cooking that uses red palm oil and everybody who talks about that is like very clear to make sure that people know this is not the same kind of palm oil we're talking about when we're talking about the orangutan populations, Mm. but there's also palm oil that is apparently ethically sourced, but I myself personally, at this point in time, don't buy anything with any palm oil in it. Cause I don't know if I can trust those certifications to need to do more research, but that means I can't eat Oreos, which are basically the only commercially available, like really actually delicious vegan cookie,
0: mm. but
1: I don't consider palm oil a vegan product at this point in time. And mm. I don't, I know for sure that like Oreos do not use the like sustainably harvested palm oil.
0: Even like the mint Oreos. Those are amazing. I know. How about Jojo's from Trader Joe's? Do you guys have Trader Joe's up there?
1: Yeah, we have Trader Joe's up here.
0: How about the JoJo's? Those are basically like Oreos on steroids.
1: They're not as good. And I think they might have palm oil in them too. Oh, the God. the vegan chocolate chip cookies from Trader Joe's do not have palm oil and they are <laughs> so good.
0: <laughs> gotcha. All right. Kelly has her, her fix.
1: But the, I mean, that's like really voting with your dollar. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of other environmental cases out there where we do choose whether or not to put our money towards one thing or another because we're Concerned about the overall effects that our contributions have mm. on those larger things, like creating demand for things that are unsustainable. But there's other things we can do within our own communities, too, that are not just like how we spend our money. We can do what we can for the wild animals that live in our own neighborhoods. There are plenty of them. They usually get hit by cars a lot because people drive too fast down residential streets.
0: Mm, but that's a big problem in Yosemite. I was uh, I was reading up on that. You know, the I think five bears um were were hit by cars and killed in geez. a too short amount of time.
1: <laughs> Any amount of time.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, up here you see a lot of um raccoons and squirrels um mm. get hit. But there are other ways to try to protect those populations by planting things that are conducive towards a natural habitat to kind of compensate for the fact that things were bulldozed probably like 30 years to build suburban homes. Plant wildflowers for bees. Don't pour chemicals down the drain. Don't like actively harm the animals in your neighborhood is a a good idea. Don't like put out rat poison all the time.
0: Yeah, that might seem small, but I guess, you know, like we said, if you don't have the reach of a million dollars to help animals in the, in the Amazon, then starting in your own backyard is certainly not a bad place to, uh, to begin.
1: Yeah. So I think it comes down to just being mindful. If you can afford to make these decisions as a consumer, do your research and choose wisely, make sure to actually recycle things. Yelling at politicians is always, if for no other reason, then it's pretty fun. But it could could actually be productive, getting people on your side at a a larger level, the people who represent you in, you know, legislatures.
0: Well, like like you mentioned with the Oregon Zoo earlier, if the population of Oregon is wildlife conscious Mm -hmm. and they put that kind of pressure on local politicians who have a say in how state zoos are run, you can make a difference there. Absolutely. So, okay, well there there are some alternatives and there's little things, but that doesn't change the fact that there are 5000 tigers in captivity in the United States. So, end of the episode, we've talked about private ownership, we've talked about zoos, we've talked about potential alternatives. Kelly, what do we think?
1: This has been a really hard one for me because I actually don't know that I have any more clear an idea of what my advocacy is at the end of this compared to where I was before we started. I think that there are specific owners, specific zoos to specific individuals who do a good job for animals, but on the whole, do we have the capability of actually weeding out all the ones that, that are terrible or should we create more stringent standards for things like the Joe exotics out there? I just don't know. I think that there's probably people who have exotic animals in private ownership, who are doing a wonderful job for their animals. But is that the case the majority of the time, only a small percentage of the time? I don't know. I personally enjoy going to the zoo. (sighs) I don't know. I just, I think I'm content to continue my individual consumer behaviors that I'm comfortable with, not buying meat and things like that. Yeah, I don't know. This is when I just, I don't know that I have like a clear... Revelation at the end of it all.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, what makes this tough for me too is that most of the justifications for the need for zoos come from man-made problems, right? We're saying, oh, but the animals are going extinct, their habitats are dwindling, so we need to save them, and zoos or potentially private owners can do that. But whose whose fault is that, right? Whose fault is it that all of those all of those issues are coming about? It's all the fault of people, so. You know, For us to try and say, oh, look how amazing we are for, for solving the problem that we caused is super disingenuous, in my opinion. But at the same time, trying to be fair, that's not necessarily the zoo's fault, right? Some people suck. Some people are out there destroying the Amazon, destroying environments for palm oil so that Kelly can have her Oreos, even though she's boycotting them now. Right? But there are some people who try and fight against it too. And I guess it's it's not fair of me to lump all of these people who are making an effort in the zoos together with all the people who are causing the problems. But I don't know, hearing the numbers about how many zoos fail a basic accreditation, like the one that we talked about, 90% of them failing it. I, if you can't do something right, you, you shouldn't be doing it. This is not like it's a, it's a crappy Mexican restaurant. And if I have a, bad Al Pastor, I can complain on Yelp and not go back again, right? The animals in these, in these conditions can't leave a bad review and then stop patronizing the zoo that they're, that they're trapped in. The lion cubs who are murdered right after being born can't petition their local politician to improve the standards at local zoos. So I don't know, I guess, do we get rid of them altogether? That kind of seems like throwing the baby out with the bathwater because there are some zoos out there that I think do a good job, but maybe we just need to start being a lot more strict about the ones that we allow to exist and the ones that we do not.
1: So it depends.
0: I guess, I guess. Also on a a happier note, I suppose, because I don't want to keep thinking about this. uh, I I did mention I, I had a membership to the San Diego Zoo in the San Diego Safari Park, and I took what I think were some pretty cool photographs of the animals there. So I think we'll post some of those on our Twitter and our Facebook, both at IndubitablyPod, if you want to check those out after listening to the episode.
1: And those are also great places to share your thoughts on this topic as well. If you think that we just completely missed the mark when it comes to the purpose of zoos and how great a job they do, or you think that, you know, Joe exotic should have been pardoned by Trump before he left office or, <laughs> you know, where Carol Baskin's husband is. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or, or, um, you know, if there's maybe a zoo that you've visited that you were either depressed by or impressed by, you know, maybe let some of the other listeners know, these are the ones that you should feel good about going to. And these are the ones you should not.
1: Yeah. We welcome further discussion and, um, if you want to yell at us, we're here for it.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, until next time. Thanks for listening as always and take care. Bye-bye.